you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6 tonight. We're going to uh, begin our time by hearing the first four verses. Uh, we'll end up covering down through verse 14, but I believe it'll be good for us to set the tone for our talk tonight around with these first four verses as the Apostle Paul gives us some pretty provocative uh, words up front. He, he kind of rattles us a little bit. He wants to make sure we're, we're awake or that we're listening. And I think there are certain passages of the Bible that get our attention. Uh, this is one of them uh, because I think a lot of times we assume we know things or we assume we have it all figured out. But this uh, passage tonight is going to challenge what we believe Christianity to be all about, how we understand our faith and what we believe our faith should be, uh, the, what, what the impact it should have on our lives. This passage is going to confront us, but not to, to you know, chastise or to convict us or condemn us, but to help us uh, because God wants to work out his power in our lives. We're going to hear about that power a lot tonight, and we've heard a lot about it so far in Romans. So listen with me and follow along with me. In Romans 6, verse 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or God forbid. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And that kind of gets our attention a little bit. What does that mean? He explains. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, underline that. We'll talk about that in depth later on tonight. Even so we also should walk in the newness of life. God's got a lot to give us tonight, a lot in store for us tonight. But before we get uh, dig into this text, I want to kind of want to kind of talk to you about what come to my mind, what came to my mind as I began studying this text, and I believe that's going to uh, buoy us into a good conversation. Every once in a while, uh, when I'm studying uh, God's word and really just in life in general, it's kind of how my brain works. And maybe you don't want to know more about how my brain works, but for the next five minutes or so, uh, just bear with me. Um, uh, um, but every once in a while, um, certain questions come to my mind. Maybe you're like maybe you're like that. Maybe you've you've uh, you've had that experience before, where you're um, studying something or you're just observing something, and you just kind of get a get an idea on your mind. And maybe it's in the form of a question. Um, you're trying to figure something out, and you're, you're asking why or what is causing and this or that. And uh, every once in a while when I'm studying, uh, I, I, a question kind of gets pressed on my mind and I write it down and I really start thinking about, hey, you know, what is the answer to this question and, and how can I figure this out? So I dig into research and studying and it's really hard to get off my mind. And that, again, that's just kind of how I'm wired. Uh, I, I can't just think about it and let it go. I have to really kind of get to the bottom of it. Um, now, I don't, obviously there's not an answer to every question, but I'm going to try to figure it out if uh, I'm able to. And, and, and of course, there's a lot smarter people out there that can help me. Um, but odds are, um, on any given day, if you're with me, or if you interact with me, or if you observe me, I'm probably contemplating or I'm probably processing some kind of idea or question like this. It's just kind of how my brain works. Uh, now, usually it begins with me asking or considering a question um, along the lines of, why is this so? Or why does that always happen? Why am I 
all, why am I the way that I am or why um, are we the way that we are? Now, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm observing people. A lot of times I'm just observing myself in the mirror, which is most of the time I'm racking my brain for uh, a good while trying to figure it out. Now, I, I consult different sources, uh, you know, trying to weigh out the info that I can gather and try to come to a conclusion that satisfies my curiosity. Now, maybe you're similar to me in that. Uh, and if you aren't, that's okay. It's probably a good thing if you aren't, um, because being so analytical is not always the luxurious uh, way to live. Uh, it can kind of... Uh, uh, kind of keep you out of the moment because you're trying to uh, observe other moments. But um, that's kind of the cross that I bear and, and I try to manage that in a healthy way. But most of the time, um, these questions that cross my mind, they, they aren't just super random ideas. Um, usually I'm reading the Bible or, or supplement to the scriptures uh, or I'm listening to a sermon or something like that. Uh, and the way I try to break it down is I usually try to, to, to kind of you know frame that thought in terms of, you know, why is this or why is that so? And, you know, why is this true or what makes this difficult and why do people react the way that they do so many different ways. So the latest question uh, that got stuck in my mind and rolled around for a while was this question. Why do we like what we like? Or why are we interested in what we are interested in? Or why are we bent towards what we are bent towards? And, and this was a question that really came to my mind as I've been studying Romans. You know, why are we the way that we are? Because all of us are a certain way. All of us are, uh, have certain interests and certain behavior, certain characteristics, certain traits. All of us, um, some of us are unique in them. Some of us share them with others. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we may think that we're the only person that's like that, but it turns out there's a lot more people like like that. Uh, but a question that came to my mind as I kind of just been, been observing, observing the scripture and, and, and just kind of observing life in general is why are people the way that they are? And, and not any one way, but all the different ways that we happen to be. Why do I like what I like? And why do you like what you like? And why are you interested in things that I would never be interested in? And why am I interested in things that you think are the most awful or, or you, know, you know, silly things that you could ever be interested in? Because again, all of us are unique in some ways. And again, some of us are, are similar in others. Uh, now, uh, as you begin to dive into this question, because you could probably Google this question and come up with a lot of the same sources that I was looking at. Um, and I'll spare you the psychology and the neuroscience, because there's a whole lot of research that's been done to try to figure out why are people the way that they are? Why are certain people this way and that way? And what makes us drift towards this direction or drift away from that direction? Uh, why do we have certain likes and why do we have certain dislikes? Uh, why are my tastes the way they are and why are yours the way they are? Uh, essentially, essentially, if you were to bottle down the hours and hours of research you could do on this, essentially it all comes down to a few particular factors uh, that really should not be that surprising. Uh, essentially, it all comes down to genetics and conditioning, genetics and conditioning. So the reason why we are the way we are, the reason we like the stuff that we like, the reason we dislike the things that we dislike, um, if you pull it all down, and again, you could, you could read hundreds and hundreds of pages explaining all this, but my, you know, let's shrink this down into a conversation we can have for 30 minutes. Um, the, the, the two biggest factors are genetics, as in our wiring, our DNA, our genetic code, uh, the, the, the stuff we are born with and how 
all that plays out as we grow older and as we are nurtured and so forth, um, our genetics and our conditioning. And uh, now, of course, you all know what genetics refers to. Um, it's our makeup. It's our design. Now, we believe that we are designed ultimately by God. Uh, God is the author of all life, but we also believe that you and I are the way, are, we, you and I genetically are the result of our parents. So yes, God is the author of life, but God, as he authored and designed life, uh, made it to be the, the case that, you know, we are born as a mixture, as an amalgamation of our moms and our dads. And of course, our moms and our dads are a mixture of their moms and their dads. So as we come into this world, we've got a whole lot of other factors that have kind of been cooked up together uh, to produce the person that we are. So we are the way we are. We like the stuff that we like in some part or in some way as a result of our genetics. But um, another big factor or maybe a bigger factor is our conditioning. Now, conditioning might not be something you think about a lot, but you're probably familiar with it once we talk about it. Um, It's a pretty simple concept. Uh, It refers to the environments in which we are fostered in, uh, the things that we spend our time, the places we spend our time in, the people we spend our time with, uh, that we are influenced by things and by people and, and by our surroundings. Now, when it comes to conditioning, there are two different types of conditioning. And again, this isn't rocket science. You, you could probably you know, figure this out. Uh, there is indirect conditioning and there is direct conditioning. Now, direct conditioning naturally is when someone instills something in you uh, and they know they're doing it and they're purposely doing it. So when we are directly conditioned, it's because our parents sit us down and they tell us, hey, this is how things should be. Or they, ind- they directly tell us or show us or surround us or foster us or nurture us. And maybe it's not what they say, but it's where they put us. It's, hey, I intend on this to be passed along and I'm making everything be in such a way that it might would directly condition you. Now, all of us were directly conditioned uh, by our surroundings growing up. Our parents made decisions that directly directly, intentionally conditioned us. And they did that because they thought that was the best thing for them to do. And they had reasons, hopefully biblical reasons for what they did. Now, again, there's also indirect conditioning, which is, as you might expect, it's when we absorb and retain influences that maybe we weren't supposed to, or maybe we weren't intended to, but it's just kind of the process of osmosis. We're in a surround, we're in an environment where things that are set around us and done around us and presented around us, they get into us. Again, this is maybe the generation you were brought up in. Kids that were born in the 90s are different than kids that were born in the 80s, that were born in the 2000s, in the last decade. Indirect conditioning is we didn't really intentionally put ourselves there or we weren't placed there, but it's because of just the indirect process of how we were brought up. And this isn't just something that happens as kids, but in the world that we live in, we are indirectly, unintentionally, but definitely conditioned by our surroundings and by things and things that are said and things that are done. So all of this plays a factor in who we become, the taste we develop, the interests we develop, and over time, we may change, right? That we may decide, hey, I'm not gonna be that way anymore. Maybe we were told to be different. Maybe we would just observe something and we chose to be different. But over time, we are conditioned directly or indirectly, and that is why we are the way that we are. That is why we like or dislike the things that we like or dislike. Now, 
if you were to categorize these, I'm sure there are all sorts of opinions, and maybe you have a lot of opinions. Um, you know, when you consider the two, genetics versus conditioning, you know, which one has the bigger impact? Is it 50-50? Is it 70-30? Is it some sort of lopsided equation, 90-10? Now, we all, again, we all may have, uh, have a response to that. Everybody might would respond differently. Well, you may say, well, you know, you've you got to understand, you know, my, my family's been, you know, every generation of, of men or women in my family have been this way and, you know, condition all you want. It's just kind of how it is. And that's 90% of the reason why I am the way I am. And yeah, there's been some conditioning, but isn't it true a lot of times um, our genetics determine the conditioning? So if we are born the way we are and we're kind of raised the way we are, we are intentionally going to pass that along. So it kind of blurs the lines, doesn't it? As to who we are born as and who we are raised as and how we pass that along. So again, it gets murky and you could study this for a semester or two or, you know, a whole term in college if you wanted to, to try to figure out, you know, what has the bigger effect on people, conditioning or genetics. Now, again, I have my opinions, you have your opinions, but this isn't about opinions tonight, so we'll move on. Uh, But, um, you know, when we begin to, to try to consider, you know, what causes the likes versus our dislikes? And again, what impacts our tastes and our interest you know why am I so different than you and how can you take two people that were born in the same town and were relatively the same age and were brought up in similar demographic household but yet they're so different brothers and sisters even twins at times that uh, you know they, they genetically they're pretty much the same but yet things are not the same in them and through them and the way that they live and again you can take a church full of people who all profess to believe the same things yet we're all so different we have different likes and dislikes different tastes and different interest and and for some of you for some of you you've been the same way since you were little haven't you and and nothing wrong with that maybe you developed your you know your identity your likes your dislikes and you've just been the same way since you were as old as you you know as long as you can remember maybe you know the only thing different about you is the way that you look the way that you you know your your size and your look has changed but deep down it's the same you since you were 20 15 10 I don't know you you know you people would say well yeah they've been that way all their lives they're the same person nothing wrong with being stagnant or being the same it's just kind of how some of us are now for some of us I think it's true for all of us in some in some way shape or form um, some of us our most defining interest in in features maybe they didn't come along until we were adults and maybe you you think well you know I've always been the same way but if you really dig into it when you were 25 something happened to you or somebody entered your life or something changed about you and that's been a big feature about you ever since maybe you were in your 30s or 40s and you discovered something you came upon something and that began to be a defining feature for you and so maybe you thought you haven't changed that much but really you have Things you used to don't dislike, you like now, and things that you used to like, you don't like now. Again, people change sometimes more than others. And, and again, we'll surprise ourselves in terms of how much we change if we really begin to examine our lives. Now, I could share stories about myself that I'm sure you'd love to hear, but we don't have time to get into that nonsense tonight. So we'll move, move on. Um, but I think for all of us, if we were to take a step back and examine our likes and dislikes and the approach that we have ascertained those likes and dislikes, tastes and interests, uh, I think we'd all tell stories of being raised a certain way 
And we'd all tell stories of having always been a certain way or always liked certain things. And, and maybe there was a defining moment along the way, a person, a thing that happened, a person that you met or a situation that you went through and something came into your life you didn't see coming and it changed you and it, it caused you to pivot in terms of the things that you like or the things that you chose to do or not do. But if we were to bullet all down to a couple of reasons, I think it's safe to say it's a little bit because of our genetic predisposition and a little bit about how we've been conditioned. It's a mixture of the way we were born as in the person that we came out and into this world as genetically. It's a mixture of that and it's a mixture of how we were fostered and how we were raised and the impact that all that had on us over time. You mix it all up and you get us individually and we are all different. Some of us are more similar than others, but ultimately we're all unique in some way, shape, or form. Now, so far in Romans, we have learned why we are the way we are. We have learned why we are drift, why we drift towards certain things and why we are completely opposed to certain things. So far in Romans, we have learned why we like the things that we like and why we dislike the things that we dislike. We've learned while we are drawn in a certain direction over another um, with regards to our behavior, with regards to our nature and our characters. We have learned that we are all born, fallen, broken, fractured before God. We have learned that we were born into this world, fallen, broken, fractured creatures that that was never God's intent but because of the first man we learned this last week and we learned this back in chapter three we were born into this world influenced by or in the image of Adam and Adam was the first man that God made and because Adam sinned against God because Adam rebelled against God because Adam with a free will chose to rebel against God and disobey God Adam in, in the way that God had humanity design and the way that genetic code was at, the, at that time or you know in the beginning, when Adam fell, all of humanity fell with him. That Adam's connection to God was so pure and so perfect. When he broke that bond, when he walked away from God, it so damaged the human gene code. It so damaged his DNA that when he fell, every one of us that have come from him, because he came first and we all have come since. When Adam fell, every human that would come after him was destined predisposed to be born, fallen, broken, fractured before God. And you may say, well, I don't really like the way that, that story goes. I would rather it be a different story. Well, again, without this story, we don't have the next part of the story. So there is good news. But we are all born fallen, broken, fractured before God because Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, we all were in sin from the beginning. All are in sin from the beginning. We are born into sin with sin as sinners. His sin becomes our sin because he is the progenitor of us all. Humanity started with Adam and humanity fell with Adam. Now we studied that in depth last week, Romans 5 chapter, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 through uh, the end of that chapter gives us clear uh, truth from God that when Adam fell, we all fell with him. Now, we, have all, we all have a predisposition to sin. 
as in to stray from God, to rebel against God, to resist and reject God's will and way. And left to ourselves, left to the genetic side of things, left to ourselves, this is the only reality we will ever know and ever function under. In Adam, we all died. In Adam, we are all dead. In Adam, we are all in sin. But thankfully, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, when we were still weak and at our worst, Jesus broke through the sinful veil of this world and came into this world as one of us and undid what Adam did. He reversed what Adam did. He came and revealed God's redemption plan. God's always had a better plan. Adam did not go along with that better plan, but Jesus came to say, listen, Adam messed it all up, but I've come to put it all back together. So rather than causing us all to suffer for Adam's sin, Jesus came to give us a better way. Jesus came to redeem us. Romans 5 ends by telling us that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Yes, our genetic code is riddled with sin. Yes, we are born in sin and under sin and are drifting towards sin and are bent towards sin. Yes, we are predisposed to sin. Yes, we have a good excuse for our sin. But in Christ, we can be redeemed and reconditioned by his grace. That is the gospel. Yes, we are sinners and we were born in sin and we are good at it and we don't have to think twice about it. We are born in sin and predisposed to sin. But Jesus came to redeem us and condition us for a better way. The reality is none of us are born leaning toward God. We are not born, even, we're not even born a blank slate. We aren't born neutral. We are born leaning against, turning away from God. And we must be saved by Jesus because left to ourselves, we are spiraling toward death from the very first breath that we take of life. Thankfully, we live in a world in which Jesus influences everywhere. His atoning death and his dynamic resurrection has left the world a different place. That alone doesn't cause us to you know, wake from our sin, but his influence is all around us and the whole world since the last 2000 years, the world is different. And again, I, I know, I know last days and perilous times, but the world is a better place this side of Jesus Christ. There's still a lot of messed up things, still a lot of sin, still a lot of death. But because the world, this side of the cross, is under the indirect, nonetheless, influence of Jesus, there is hope for us, whereas there was no hope before. There was no hope. There was only sin and only death. And is there still sin and death? You better believe it. But there is also something else. So we are indirectly influenced and impacted by Jesus' influence. But we must come under the direct influence if we are to be saved. Does that make sense? We are indirectly influenced by Jesus. There is all sorts of, of you know, thumbprints of God around us. But if we are to escape death and sin, we must come under direct influence. Nobody stumbles their way into Jesus. Nobody wakes up and says, well, I didn't realize how I got here, but I guess I am. We are not indirectly conditioned into Jesus. We must be directly influenced and directly conditioned with his saving work. 
if we are to ever overcome our predisposition to sin and escape our predetermined destiny with death, it's going to take a miracle. It's going to take a direct influence of Jesus in us and over us. You, you see, it's just like when you start developing interests as kids or as a teenager, you become aware of things that you liked that maybe you never knew existed. Maybe, I'm sure when you were a teenager, you became interested in things that you didn't realize you would be interested in. And somebody showed you something or said, hey, have you heard of this? Or have you listened to this? Have you watched this? And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I love that. I didn't love that two days ago, but now I really love it. And now I'm gonna give my whole life to it, right? That, you know, when you meet the love of your life, you didn't, you obviously didn't love them before, but when you meet them and all of a sudden the chemicals and the way your brain works and it begin, become, makes sense to you that they were made for you and you made, were made for them, you know, you didn't know them before, but once you meet them, you realize, well, I was always meant for them. So as you get older, you begin to realize that there are things that you like that you never knew were even out there. You had that disposition towards them, or maybe you were conditioned to like that kind of stuff. And when you finally realized what was available, you took advantage of it. And I think for a lot of us, I think for a lot of us, we haven't really ever understood what exactly God has done for us. And a lot of us, we have never really understood the ramifications of, where, of what God has provided for us in Christ and how we desperately need what he has done for us. You know, when I was little, I quickly, and I think you can relate to this, I quickly latched on to the idea that I needed Jesus to, to, to save me because I was told that if I wanted to go to heaven when I die, I had to have Jesus in my heart. And there's no quicker way to scare a child than to tell them about death and about the unknown of dying apart from God, right? Every kid, as soon as you tell them, hey, there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's God, there's Satan, there's life, there's suffering. Of course, a child is going to say, what do I got to do? And not, not, again, not every child is going to get saved that way. But I think everybody at a very young age, if you are introduced to that concept, there's no quicker way to get somebody to want to talk about being saved than to tell them about death and about hell, because of course, nobody wants to die and nobody wants to go to hell. So again, I was saved under those circumstances. I was taught about Jesus and I was told if I put my faith in Jesus, I would be saved. And like most children, the concept of heaven and the reality of hell made me pretty quick to make a decision towards Jesus. Now, come to think of it though, I think a lot of us know salvation strictly on those terms. It saves us from hell but we don't know that it gives us access to so much right now. And that's the book of Romans. That's the New Testament. That's the Bible that we might would know what it means to live in the power of God. Know what it means to come to life under the power of God. I think I can speak for a lot of us. We've been saved from hell, but we really haven't come to life. We really haven't been made new. Thankfully, as a teenager, God began showing me in his word that there's a whole lot more to Christianity than just death insurance. There's a whole lot more to salvation than just about what happens when I die. And God expects way more from us. God uh, gives us more and, and, and he expects more than just that we count on him when we die. God wants us to live. And if we're saved, we have access to so much more than I think we often realize at first that we have been introduced to the ideas, but we haven't come under that conditioning that we are access, have access to. A couple of verses that changed my life uh, were in the Gospel of John, uh, including, the, including Romans 6, but the Gospel of John, I want to show you these three verses because these three verses, they changed my life 15, uh, 17 years ago. John 5, 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, this is Jesus talking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He, who, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And do you, do you understand the concept there? Not will have life when they die, not will go to heaven when they die. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have eternal life right now. You have passed from death to life. I haven't died yet. I'm still living. I haven't died yet. What are you talking about? I have already passed from death to life. Don't you see there's something more to it than we often think there is? If we have trusted in Jesus, we have already stepped from death to life. So right now, what we consider living should be and can be different once we come to Jesus. He has passed. She has passed from death to life. John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it not that they might have it one day or that they could have it someday but right now you can have abundant life John 17:3 and this is eternal life that they know you how how does Jesus define eternal life how does Jesus define full new life Knowing God. And that word know is the most, is, is, the, is an intimate word. It's the word the Old Testament uses when people get married. Because, you know, we think, well, they just didn't want to tell us what they actually did. No, in the Hebrew, the word know, and in Greek, the word know, it carries that intimate connection. They know you, that they know you, the only God, Jesus, that you have sent Jesus into their hearts to give them full life. So when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, God began showing me from John and other passages what I was missing out on and what many Christians are missing out on, quite frankly. I would go to church week after week and I would hear people talk about heaven and hell, but I also would hear people talk about never getting free from sin. And I would watch people week after week go to the altar and ask God to get them out of something, but they never could get out of it because they did not understand just what they had available to them. I watch people struggle, and myself struggle with sin, struggle with f- trying to get free, and many of us assume that we could not get free. And I was being conditioned under God's word. Thankfully, I began opening up what, to what God wanted to do and was able to do in our hearts. And along with those passages in John, Romans 5 through 8 proved life-changing for me. And I can't preface this enough. Week after week, I tell you, Romans 5 through 8 can change your life. They are foundational. They are transformative. Just like with anything, timing is so crucial. And the Bible's already told us at the right time, at the perfect time, God has set all this up for us. But it's just like when you were a kid or a teenager or whenever you met that person, the timing of it was so important for you to open your eyes to what was available to you. Romans 5 has told us, taught us about the great reversal that Christ came to put in motion. He can undo what Adam did. He reverses sin's curse. He redeems and revives us with grace. And Romans 6 continues that message by detailing even further what Christ's death and resurrection means for us right here, right now in this life. We have to understand that we're never going to become who we can be if we don't begin absorbing what God has done for us right here, right now. We've heard and learned what God has done. What will we do with it is the question. 
If we've listened to Romans 5 and we listen to Romans 6, we can be made new and we can take advantage of abundant, full, eternal life that is available to every one of us. Right off the bat, Paul tells us we should definitely, that we should definitely uh, be stepping into something new once we become Christians. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So Paul is immediately saying, okay, you believe that Adam's, Adam's sin has been undone. Christ has done something that's gonna change you from the inside out. So now that you are in Christ, there should be something different about you because there's something different in you. There's someone different in you. So Paul says, if you are a Christian and something's not different about you, we need to talk. And here's the thing. A lot of us, a lot of us, our version of Christianity, and I say version because it's not really Christianity. Our version of Christianity is what I call the rinse and repeat model. Rinse and repeat. And if this is your model, you've got the wrong model because it's, it's much better than this. Some people are stuck in this cycle and sadly churches don't really teach the, the true nature of salvation and they just perpetuate it. What, whether it's the idea that week after week we go through the motions and we never really get free and it, you know, it, it's rather insulting to God that we live this way and, and it's really sad that we live this way. Think about the Exodus story, how there were some people once they got across the Red Sea that kept telling Moses, we should just go back to bondage. It was better there. It was not better there. They were literally making you miserable and killing you. But there were people that said to Moses, we should go back because it's got to be better there than it is here. And it wasn't that what they had there was bad. It was they weren't taking advantage of it. They were convinced that living in bondage was better. What sort of sense does that make? Well, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what it's like for Christians who never embrace the grace of God that's available to us. Paul says in Romans 5, or Galatians 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, to sin and death. But again, isn't it true that so many of us submit again to sin and death, even though we have put our faith in Jesus? Our lives are not any different. Now, growing up as a Baptist, we used to pity the denominations that believed they had to confess their sins in church every week, some to a priest, some to a congregation. Um, you know, Baptists were, oh, we were sophisticated. We didn't have to go to a priest, but we were not really any better. We just would pray every single day. We would sin and pray and sin and pray, sin and pray. And whereas some people go to a priest and some people go to church on Sunday and confess their sins out loud with the you know, whole congregation, we Baptists, we just sinned every day and we confessed every day and sinned some more and confessed some more. And we were convinced that was the way it had to be. And we had this little verse from John, 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, forgive us our sins. So again, yeah, well, I mean, Christianity is just like this. I'm going to sin and be forgiven, sin and be forgiven, sin and be forgiven. And I mean, come on, isn't there a better way than that? And I'm not saying that this verse isn't true. It is. But if your life is just a repeat cycle of this, that's kind of pitiful, isn't it? It's kind of miserable, isn't it? And what does the verse say to continue? And he will cleanse us of unrighteousness. Honestly, I think a lot of us cling to this idea of stumbling along because it soothes our consciences and it sort of eases conviction. And this is just Satan's way of trapping us and never letting us see true life. 
So if you think Christianity is just stumbling along and you're sinning and, you know, oh, I'll, never, I'll get better one day and you never get better. Come on, there's, it's better than that. What Paul says in verse two, he, he's really baffled by the idea. He says, how, how can we continue in sin? And he isn't saying this to judge us or condemn us. He's just saying, how is that possible? Do you know what God has done for you? How in the world can you continue to live under death and bondage if you have believed in the power of salvation? That seems impossible. If you've come under the power of God, how is it that you're still under the power of sin and death? Don't you think salvation's better than that? Don't you think salvation is bigger than that? Just to put you through that cycle? And, and listen, we think sin is just something we're stuck with. If sin was enough to kill Jesus, don't you think keeping it around within us is enough to still kill and destroy our lives? Absolutely. We will never know what it means to be full of life and have abundant life if we keep those old nature and attributes around. Again, a lot of us, I think most of us, we have, in it, we have it in us to respond quickly and passionately to this conversation because if we're saved, we want more than sin and death dominating us. We don't want to be bound and make excuses for the rest of our lives. We want what's more and what's more is available. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know? And the reason he says, do you not know? Because many of them did not know. Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized unto his death? And he explains that. We were buried with him in baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. A lot of people don't know this or they've never had it explained before. A lot of Christians don't know that salvation's power counters sin in every way. A lot of us don't know that. A lot of us haven't been taught that. And religion won't teach you this because religion wants to keep you on the hook. But it never helps you. It just makes things worse. And that's because Satan uses religion to make us hard and make us bitter. And whenever it gets us to quit worrying about our sin, we begin worrying about other people's sin. And uh, eventually we make excuses for ourselves. The gospel, though, the gospel is that Christ died and Christ was buried. He died for our sin. He was buried with our sin. Our sin was buried with him. And he raised up again. And when he raised up again, he ushered in new life for all who believe. And that's what baptism is a picture of. We are buried in sin. Our sin is buried just like Christ was buried. We are raised up in new life. Every one of us, every one of us has access to this new life. This isn't a second work of grace. This isn't something that only super Christians get. Every believer, we have been made new in Christ. If we've trusted Jesus as our savior and redeemer, he has forgiven us and sin has been buried with him. And we have been raised with him. And if we've been raised with him, we have found life in him. Listen with me to Romans 5 through, uh, 6, 5 through 11. This is going to repeat itself a lot, but it's, he says a lot of the same things in different ways so that we might latch on to it. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
knowing this, our old man, our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So that means he did this one time and one time it was enough for all of us. Likewise, this is the big one. Likewise, you also reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here comes the conditioning. Because we've just heard that God has, un, God has fixed the genetic problem. We're predisposed to sin. Jesus has done a work that's going to reverse that, undo that, give us freedom from that. It's still lingering around, but we don't have to be held back by it anymore. But here comes the conditioning that we must respond to every day. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. The two words in yellow is one Greek word, logzomai. Logzomai is repeated all throughout the New Testament. It means to write it down and make it happen. It means to literally make logs of it or to write down a record of it. It's the idea of internalizing this again and again and again. Come under the conditioning truth of what God has done. Put it on repeat. And that's why we come to church. That's why we worship. It's why we listen to godly music. It's why we study God's word. It's why we talk to people, each other about God's word. It's why it's more than just a one-time prayer and I'm good to go. It's a lifestyle of considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God. This is what's available to you. You are meant to be this way. The question is, will you take this step? Again, just to recap from verse five to 11, we've heard this. We're united with him. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're set free from sin. We're alive with him. This is our reality as believers. Is it your reality? There's a difference in being alive and being alive in God. And Christians, we are the only ones that can experience the difference. I want to show you something, and I didn't put it on the screen, and I don't want to take up too much time, but I'll just tell, it, tell, you, tell you this, and you can, you can fact check me if you want to. In Genesis 5, there's a genealogy of people from Adam to Noah. Y'all read it before, or you probably skipped it before, right? And that's Okay. There's people like Seth and Enosh and Jared and Mahaliel. And then there's a guy named Enoch. And if you read all the stories, it goes, and so-and-so lived so many years, had a son, and they lived and died. They lived and died. They lived and died. And then you get to Enoch. And it says, Enoch lived 65 years and had a son named Methuselah. And after he had Methuselah, he walked with God. And then he was no more. Every passage in that, every verse in that scripture says they lived and they died. They lived and they died. But Enoch, he didn't live. He walked with God. You hear the difference? They lived, they had a son, they lived and they died. Enoch lived, he had a son and he walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him. There's a difference in living and walking in the newness of life. A lot of people have a pulse. You all do if you're here tonight. 
A lot of people have a pulse. They're living, but not everybody is alive with him, united with him, walking with him. See, we remember Enoch because he was raptured, but before he was raptured, he lived a life that is defined as walking with God. I'll do a whole sermon on that in the future, but that's just a preview of it. There's a difference, isn't there? We often focus on the end, but our current reality is indicative of what we claim about eternity. So I got to ask you these questions. Are you walking with God? Yes or no? You can answer that in your own time. Are you alive in Christ? If I took off the in Christ, of course you're alive. Are you alive in Christ? If you're a Christian, you can walk with God. You can be alive in Christ. And deep down, you want to be. Deep down, you so desperately want to be. You can be free from the mentality of death dominating you. The things that have been kept keeping you in bondage, lust and greed and jealousy and hatred and spite and doubt and fear. Those things have been defeated. Yet so many of us live under their power, don't we? And we say, well, that's just an old habit of mine. I guess it'll go away when I get to heaven. And that's fine, it will. But is that, a really, is, that a, is that really an attitude a Christian should have? How can we continue? You have the capacity for peace and contentment and joy and gratitude and faith and boldness and patience. You can make a difference for God's kingdom if you consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. If you come under his conditioning and listen to these last three verses in closing. Therefore, do not let, because it is a choice you make. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present yourself as members, present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves, or literally the word is yield yourselves to God as being made alive from the dead and your members as in all the things that make you up as instruments of righteousness. I know how you, I know the reason why you are the way you are. I understand your genetic. I understand your conditioning, but you bring that to God. This is what he can do. You say, I've been trying. I've been bringing it to God for a long, long time. Well, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Because you know that your old, your old nature and the devil and sin and all that, it's not going to give up. But you know what you have access to. You know what you have available to. Verse 14 is the promise. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Are you telling me the reason why sin is still ruling me is because I let it? Absolutely. You hear that? I'm not judging you or condemning you. I'm not trying to make you feel worse than you already feel because you feel pretty bad when sin ruins your life, don't you? Sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law. You're not under that anymore. You're under grace. Let not. Do not present yourself. Literally every single day we come to a yield sign. Now, a lot of us don't know how to operate with yield signs. You go downtown and nobody knows what to do. They see the yield sign. Is that for me? Is that for them? I don't know. Y'all know what I'm talking about, the court square. Everybody's just looking around thinking, well, I guess I'm going to go. And some people don't stop. Some people do stop. Some people stop when they're not supposed to stop. <laughs> and that makes you mad because people should know how to read signs. But come on. How do you think God feels when he sees us every single day? And here we are at a yield sign. We can give, up, we can give in to our genetic sinful predisposition. 
or we can give into our newfound resurrection conditioning. Which one? Y'all know which one. With every situation, we have a choice. So which are you going to yield to? And we must present ourselves to God so that we might be filled with his power. We're no longer in the grave. We are under grace, raised up. So we'll, we'll get into this more and more in the next couple of weeks, but ask yourself, why are you the way you are? I know there's a long story there and I understand, I respect it. Why are you the way that you are? Are you still like Adam when you don't have to be? Are you still yielding to Adam's sin or are you yielding to Christ's grace? Are you alive in Christ? That's a yes or no. Are you alive in Christ? Is your life full of him? His attributes, his attitudes. That's the difference between death and life. And come on, why would you get back in a grave you have been raised up from? I know there's a lot of reasons why. Our minds make us think that, oh, I can't do any better. I know there's a lot that goes on there. The mind's powerful, sin is powerful, the devil's powerful. They are active to destroy us every day. But look at that grave and you say to yourself, I'm not getting back in a grave I've been resurrected from. That's crazy. It makes no sense, but thankfully, God has made a way. He's made a better way. You can break free. You are free if you yield yourself to what God has done and condition yourself under what God wants to do. I promise you, this is not my words. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I can't make this happen for you. Nobody can make this happen for you. The Holy Spirit is begging you, just let me do it. And I will. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Lord, we are, I'm asking you to, to show people that this is true, this is real, this is powerful. I can't make this real for them. I can't even make it real for me. It's the Holy Spirit of God who says this can be your reality. And I have to make that decision to yield to you because you've already done the hard part. You've already made me alive in Christ. You've already united me with Christ. You've already broken me free from sin. You've broken the, bonds, the, the, the bondage and the chains and the dominion. You have already made it available to you. You've already made it accessible to me. All I've got to do is yield, consider, and follow. Lord, would you do this in the lives of these people? Lord, we could have a revival in a work of God like never before if every Christian began walking in this newness of life. Lord, would you do that in the lives of these men and women? Would you show them what you've done for them and what you can do in them? Lord, would you help us consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God? You've done the hard part. Make it real in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.